Well, you know, you, you figure out over time when there's a contrast, you get to look back and say, ooh, I had something really, really valuable. Um, went to a funeral yesterday, the first pastor that I worked for and with. And the older I've gotten, I realize more and more what a gift I had in uh, how he and his wife treated Christy and I in our very first experiences in ministry. We see the same thing in leaders. You see a contrast. Uh, sometimes it requires a contrast to say, ooh, that was really valuable. Here's George Washington. Uh, as we were winning the War of Independence, 1783, George wrote a letter to all 13 governors of the first colonies, what became states. It was called the Circular to the States. And in it, he ended the letter with a prayer. And he said, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all, lead us all to do justice, to love mercy, that comes from the Bible, and to demean ourselves, humble ourselves. He, he called them to humility, a peaceful state of mind, and he said, we need to, the only way we're going to survive as a nation is if we have a humble imitation of God's mercy, justice, and humility. Ooh. And then he set the example, because the war ended. He went back to being a farmer in Virginia, running his plantation. The nation decided it needed him, called him back to be its first president. There was no law against however many terms you wanted at that point. He chose two. He limited himself to two terms. You think any politician would do that today? Not a chance. Why? Humility. They wanted to call him His Majesty. So we just got away from all that. Forget it. Uh, Mr. President is plenty. Thank you. An example of humility. We're going to see a contrast today with that. We're in this series, Thriving in Exile. So uh, students who are uh, checking us out as a church family, welcome. Uh, want the series to make sense. We're ending it today. We aren't taking the whole book of Daniel. We're taking four themes. So here's where we've been. We said, first of all, we talked about God's sovereignty. Thriving is faithful obedience to Yahweh in the face of evil and idolatry. Daniel had been deported with his friends to Babylon. They're in a strange place, different religion, all kinds of idols. How do you obey God in the midst of that? And first week, we looked at sovereignty. Pastor Kip took us to chapter 2. We're called to walk as disciples no matter the ruler or the context of the culture. There was the statue, all the empires of the world. The point wasn't the history lesson. The point was God is in charge of all of history, sovereignty. Then the second week, uh, Sam took us to dependency. Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. And the lesson there, their obedience to God wasn't dependent on Yahweh's activity. What about when it looks like God doesn't have his act together? It isn't turning out the way we want. We don't understand what he's up to. We obey. Dependency. And then our third theme last week 
was in chapter 6, integrity, Daniel in the lion's den. And that was all about uh, faith habits. For Daniel, specifically prayer, there was an internal integrity that wouldn't bend, it couldn't bend when it was tested. That's what we're after. Fourth theme today is humility. Pride versus humility. And we're in Daniel chapter 4. So I invite you to take your Bibles. If you're using one in front of you, it's page 722. We're in Daniel 4 today as we look at a fourth theme. And we're going to look particularly at King Nebuchadnezzar. Today we're going to learn God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Chapter 4 shows us King Nebuchadnezzar, world's most powerful ruler, being humbled by God. And we learn that pride is a sin that shows up in every human heart. From the most arrogant boaster to the quiet, self-dependent introvert. I got this. Only the grace of God and the transformation brought about when we become followers of Jesus can move us from pride to humility. And in Daniel, we get this contrast between King Neb in chapter four and his pride, and we get a little later to Daniel, and we see another example of Daniel's humble obedience. There's an interesting uh, development through Daniel. We, we get all these experiences of King Nebuchadnezzar being exposed to different things about God. Chapter 2, oh, he knows all things and he reveals what the king's dream means. So King Neb saw God's wisdom and that he knows everything. Then chapter 3, he says the miracle of the friends delivered from the fiery furnace. Oh, He sees God's power and miracles, but we've got nothing in the text, nothing in the Bible that tells us King Neb ever made Yahweh his God, his Lord and master, and it's a lesson to us, head knowledge. King Neb learned lots about God. That's a very different thing than a faith-based trust and relationship with the one true God. And that's a lesson to all of us. Well, we see in chapter four, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. We've got before the dream, then the dream, and after the dream. Before the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was the arrogant king of the conquering nation of Babylon. It says, verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I guess so. He had just defeated his only rival in the world at that point was the Egyptian empire. He had squashed them. He had destroyed Jerusalem. He's riding high politically. His power has never been higher. And God sends a dream. And that dream upsets him. The dream is described starting at verse five. I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Nightmare time, King Neb. He has the dream. He calls in all his diviners, astrologers, enchanters. Explain this to me. They can't. So he calls Belteshazzar, Daniel's Babylonian name. And he says, I know that, this is verse 9, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. 
This is what I saw. While lying in bed, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Hmm. Several times in the Old Testament, a tall tree is the metaphor for a proud, powerful person. Well, then in the dream, there's a messenger that comes. The word means watchman. We think it's a, a class of angels. So verse 13, uh, there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches but to let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched. Oh, now the messenger tells us, uh, now we shift from tree to him. That's how we know the tree's representing someone. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let it be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. And then the, the messenger, this angel, gives the verdict, the conclusion. What's the point of all this? Cut down the tree, the stump will remain, turn him into an animal. The point's verse 17. Here's the verdict. All this is so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them even the lowliest of people. Oh, human rulers exercise their authority only by the permission of God. It's what Jesus told Pilate. You have no authority except what's been given you by God. He is above those who are above us. And that should comfort your soul and be uh, something that puts your soul at rest. He's above those who are above us. Well, Daniel then gives the interpretation. In verse 19, Daniel shook. He's perplexed. His thoughts terrified him. King says, uh, Belteshazzar, don't worry about it. Tell me what the dream means. Don't be afraid. And Daniel answers, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Then he explains, verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong. Verse 22, your majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You rule all. Your majesty saw a messenger. The messenger said the message, cut down the tree, leave the stump, let him be drenched. Here's the interpretation. Verse 24, your majesty, this is the decree the most high has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live like the wild animals. It's cow time, Neb. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you. 
what's the point of all this? What's Neb supposed to learn? Right here, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's what the dream is about. He says, he gives him hope, verse 26, the command to leave the root and the stump means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Two things, renounce your sins by doing what is right and renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So that's the dream and the interpretation. Now we get after the dream. At verse 28, all this happened. We know in verse 29, it's 12 months later. God gave King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to humble himself. Did he? Verse 30. He's walking on the roof of his palace. Uh, There's a couple of illustrations on the screen of what Babylon looked like. It was the city of the day, huge. Uh, He had done a lot. He had rebuilt a bunch of temples. He put shipping docks, fortifications, built the glorious Ishtar gate. He's walking and says, is this not the great Babylon I have built? As the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Neb. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. Seven times will pass pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about King Neb was fulfilled. He ends up living like an animal. His body is drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. The pride of the king has been destroyed by the finger of God. The king will go insane, become like an animal for a set period of time, seven periods of time. God, he wouldn't humble himself, so God humiliated him to show that Yahweh, not Nebuchadnezzar, was Lord of the nations. One person wrote, pride will be the most dangerous temptation you will face because self-centered pride will push God out of your life. We know from historical records, uh, Neb ruled for 43 years And there's this gap. Uh, The records, his own records show, I fought here, I fought here, I won here, I won here. Silence. He disappears. How long do you think he disappeared for? Seven years. And then it shows up, it picks back up, he's back besieging Tyre after that. God warned him. In the dream, then it happens. And just as promised, until 
Well, he's restored. Uh, this is Neb's testimony, verse 36. My sanity was restored. My honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. And then he issues decrees. The f- verses 2 and 3 at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 34 and 35. Acknowledging God's dominion, his power, who he is. He goes from, this kingdom is from me, about me, and for me, to the declarations about nobody can hold back God's hand or say to him, what have you done? He now recognizes the power and presence of someone greater. And the point is the end of verse 37. From Neb's own mouth, Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Pride. Pride is being focused on self. Believing I'm at the center of life. Life is for me, about me, from me, to me, through me. Proud people believe life is all about them, their happiness, their accomplishments, their worth. Football season started. I'm always a little astonished. Uh, Our coach used to say, uh, when you get in the end zone, act like you've been there before. What happens now? How many times did you see yesterday somebody gets to the end zone? We like our heroes today loud and proud. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. Here's how uh, Stuart Scott uh, display, or demonstrates it, this chart. Life is from me, by me, to me. Uh, it's about lifting up myself so people should please me, serve me, respect me, meet my needs. And when they don't, I judge them or criticize them or I try and get them to by impressing them or manipulating them. Examples? Satan himself, King Saul, King Herod, the Pharisees, King Neb. Pride takes credit for what it could not achieve on its own. Allowed by God, given by God, empowered by God. Now, we're not going to spend much time there, but chapter 9, flip over to chapter 9 for a minute. Um, Daniel contrasts the pride of Nebuchadnezzar with the humility of Daniel. Where does that humility show up? Well, it's been in his recognizing God's sovereignty, his personal integrity, his dependence on God. And then in chapter 9, there's this prayer that Daniel prays on behalf of all of his people living in exile, thriving in exile. And in that prayer, he says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. This is chapter 9, verse 5. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We haven't listened to your servants, the prophets. We, 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 we. Wait a minute. Daniel's the the guy that trusts God and obeys no matter what, and he has integrity and he's dependent on God. What's with the we? Why isn't the prayer, it's these guys, they've messed up. There's a humility in Daniel to to lump himself in with them, representative humility. God, I'm gonna pray representing all of us. 
to say, would you please listen to my prayer? Would you please forgive us? Would you please not give up on us? There's a humility there that is a contrast with King Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Humility. In the Old Testament, the word means to bow low before someone greater. New Testament has two different words. One is negative. It's um, you are going to grovel. The other is gentle, meek, yielding, and it's the word Jesus applied to himself. One person said, humility is the noble choice to redirect your power in service to others. So humility, instead of focused on self, life is about me, for me, through me, to me. In humility, God and others go to the center. Here's the chart. Uh, Let's take that definition first. Uh, Can we go back? Thank you. Humility is the reasonable choice to use or forego status, Resources, use my influence for the good of others before self. A willingness to hold power in service to others. Here's the, uh, I think we have the chart. Yep. Uh, this is Stuart Scott's also. It says, now I put uh, God, I worship God by loving and serving him and others. It's not about me anymore. So our title today is, Don't Do You. You at the center? Life's about you? No, it's from God, by God, to God, and now I treat others differently. It's about serving. Here's what um, G.K. Chesterton said. This is back, I think, 1940s, when he wrote Orthodoxy. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. You'd think he wrote it in 2023. Humility. Andrew Murray says, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. And we've had it modeled for us. Because the heart of the gospel is the humility of Jesus, the Son of God, leaving heaven, incarnating, taking on flesh, living here to teach and model and then take all of our sin on himself, your sin and mine, and to go to the cross to pay the price. Who was at the center? Sounds funny to say it this way. Who's at the center of Jesus' agenda? Self? Others. It's a rescue mission to bring us salvation. We've had humility modeled for us. The Bible says lots on pride and humility. Here's a... uh, Here's a sampling of Old Testament. This is scratching the surface. Uh, Proverbs 15, humility comes before honor. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit 
before a fall. Isaiah 14 is the pride of Satan rebelling against God. Um, Most of Greek and Roman culture did not value humility. In an honor-shame culture, what counts is bring as much honor to self as possible. So boasting is absolutely fine. Let me tell you about everything I've accomplished because that's what the culture is built on. How exactly did we go from that to um, your mindset should be the same as that of Jesus Christ who humbled himself and made himself nothing? What happened to change it? John Dixon has written about the history. When did humility actually become a virtue? After Jesus. He came and he taught. Here's how he described himself in Matthew chapter 11 when he invites them, says, uh, come to me, all you, who are, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He describes himself is humble of heart. Lots of New Testament passages listed. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 and 3 because it's an example of someone who had every reason for pride but chose humility instead. Um, Here it is, Philippians chapter 2, who, referring to Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, hung on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He says, consider others better than yourselves. And Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians, lists all his accomplishments and says, they're worth a pile of cow manure compared to knowing Jesus. So he can, God uses him to give us chapter 2. Consider others more important than yourself. Imitate Jesus's humility because He had himself, chapter 3 said, all that stuff about honor and everything that would cause other people to go, ooh, Paul. He says, that isn't what matters. Uh, Not self at the center. Don't do you. It's honoring God and others at the center. Why so many verses about pride and humility? Because pride is a root sin. It's a root sin that shows up in every human heart from the most arrogant boaster to the quiet introvert who on the inside is self-dependent. And only the grace of God and the transformation brought about when we become followers of Jesus moves us from King Neb pride to Daniel humility. Every human heart So point four is the pride of, so put your name there. Um, We'll talk a minute about the pride of Bruce Barlow. 
Um, I used to play a lot of basketball. Loved it. I've told you before, my wife wouldn't come watch me play intramurals as a college student because I always got angry. Competitive. But what's underneath the anger? The sin beneath the sin. Come on. I need to feel good about myself as I play. Uh, Life is supposed to be about me and for me and to me, and you guys aren't cooperating. It's pride. Um, I'll sometimes, when I'm frustrated, I did it yesterday. I'm I'm getting ready to practice the sermon, and yesterday I go, give me a break. Who exactly am I talking to? Is that a prayer to God? Give me, what's under the frustration is this pride of, come on, life is supposed to be comfortable and easier than this, and why, why isn't this going the way I want it to go? Pride is a root sin. Um, two weeks ago, I really blew it. Uh, my wife has been helping me with this. Every once in a while, she'll say, you just interrupted again. And And she hasn't pointed out when I interrupt her as much as when I interrupt someone else. I love being one of your pastors. I love coming on Sunday. I love the body gathering. I love getting to talk to people. But way too often, I come out into the courtyard and I walk up on a conversation that's going on and I butt in or interrupt. What's underneath that rudeness? Hi, I'm the pastor. I have something to say. You want to listen to me, right? It's a root sin. Um, if you dare, everybody on the Soul Care team has worked through this little booklet, From Pride to Humility, and he's got an inventory on pride, personal inventory. After the service, I'll tell you the areas that I flunked. Um, he's also got an inventory on humility. Because the whole thing is, how do we get from Neb to Daniel? I asked the soul care team. They help people going through struggles. Uh, And I said, tell me about the situations where you've helped somebody where what's actually underneath is pride. And they went through quite a list. There's some on the screen here of situations where uh, self-pity Uh, I just can't do it. Uh, Life isn't going very well. Self is at the center. I just can't forgive. I know God's forgiven me. I can't forgive myself. What's at the center of that? Focus on self. I should be better than that sin. Other people, they mess up like that, but I just can't forgive myself. It's got pride underneath it. Performance comparison, my identity depends on how I compare to others. Control. I need to have control over my weight, over food. I need control over my circumstances, over my children, over my spouse, over my family. Things need to turn out right so that I feel successful. Self is at the center. Judgmentalism, a critical spirit. I'm better. Why can't they live up to me? So how do we move from pride to humility? Well, God graciously gives us all a choice. Plan A or plan B? Plan A, all those Proverbs. Humble yourself. 
God knows how to lift up those who will humble themselves. Plan A, humble ourselves. Plan B, Nebuchadnezzar, be humbled by God, humiliated by God. And he graciously sent him to cow time to break his pride. Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled. Daniel chose to be humble. Humility is part of the path to thriving in his exiles. Missionary Elliot Clark lived in, um, I think, Indonesia, working among Muslim people. He said, I didn't fit. Follower of Jesus, living in the middle of that culture, boy, I felt like an exile. He said he came back to the States. His family came back uh, to the United States. But the more secular things had become, he goes, I found out I felt like an exile here too. So he wrote a great book, Evangelism is Exiles. How do we live for Jesus when we're exiles? And one of his points is we need to be respectful and humble and speak the gospel with authority. Respectful and humble and speak the gospel with authority. Do those sound like opposites? Here's what God said. Here's what he's done for you. Here's what he's offered. But we're humble in the process. Humility is part of thriving as exile. So how do you grow in it? Here's a list. Uh, Choose plan A. All of these are steps to choose plan A. Take the posture of a learner. There's something we can learn from someone else always. Ask a question. Listen. Be a lifelong learner. That'll help with humility. Brag up somebody else and their abilities. I could never do what Levi does in there. Uh, I couldn't do what any of our singers do, and I certainly couldn't do what Steve does. Thank you for using your abilities to bless us. Focus on God and others rather than self. Short-term missions to a second or third culture. Boy, the first time I got to go to Cuba with Daniel, it is humbling. Experience what life is like for someone who doesn't have it as easy as we do. That's plan A. Another one, serve. We had our ministry fair last week. Um... Lots of you visited tables about ways to serve in the community, ways to serve here in the church family. Lots of people stopped by. You know how many said, I want to I sign up to serve? Have somebody contact me? Now, people are thinking about it, trying to decide where to plug in, so I don't mean that as condemnation. I mean that as encouragement. Best way to take self out of the center and to put God and others in the center is to serve. That's why we make such a big deal. God has gifted every single one of us and will only be the church family that he intended when we are each using what he's made us, what he's gifted us with to make a difference for somebody else. Serving is part of plan A to humility. Uh, dethrone yourself daily. Tom Julian was great at this. His prayer every day, he's with Jesus now, but every day is prayer to start the day. God, I take myself off the throne. 
and put myself on the altar. I put you on the throne instead. And he said, for me, it has to be. He was a humble guy. But he said, I have to make that choice every single day. So do you and I. And beware the church's optional pride. COVID did stuff to us. One of the things it did, uh, and this is our community, our county, and this is our whole nation. We got real used to just sitting at home, circle the wagons, hope we don't get COVID. It's about us. Um, So church became real optional, not according to God's word, not according to what you and I need in our souls in terms of I'm going to take the focus off me and put it on God and others. And yes, I know that's biased. It's a pastor telling you that. Uh, Beware parental pride. So uh, the guys told us about, hey, parents, let's talk. Did something like this last year, and about one-third of the parents that should have been there were there. Yeah, it means you're going to have to come two hours. You're going to have to worship at 8.30 or 11.30 to be at the 10 o'clock elective. But if you think, as a parent, two, the average is two and a half times a month for an hour on a Sunday morning is going to fulfill what God has called you to, you've got a pride issue. And the ones that are going to pay the price for it are in your family. Beware parental pride. Beware marital pride. Somebody said in the speaking team, when do you change your oil? When the engine stops? Uh, we aren't in crisis. We haven't fallen apart, so I guess we're doing okay. October, marriage builders class starts for marriages at all stages. The pride that says, yeah, it's about me. No, it's about us. And are we healthy and growing in the way that God intended? Pride is a root sin that shows up in every human heart from the most arrogant boaster to the quiet introvert who is depending on themselves. Then only the grace of God and the transformation comes when we become followers of Jesus, moves us from pride to humility. So choose Plan A. Why? Verse 37. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. But it's so much better if we humble ourselves. Would you stand with me? We're going to conclude by reading together a great passage of Scripture. And here it is. James 4, 7 to 10, uh, so that we've all got the same words. We're going to read it together as we close. Would you join me? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's walk in humility this week. 
Church family, we are sent. Amen. 